Well, thank you. Tamaria and welcome to First Up, it's Ratu. That's Tuesday, the 24th of January. Kōnathan Rārere, I hope. Today we're going to talk about why some of Japan's young people are opting for apartments which do not have baths or showers. We ask National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis if our new Prime Minister from the hut and his Westie deputy have scuppered their election plans. And we discuss Jacinda Ardern's global significance with one of UK politics' heaviest hitters, former Downing Street spokesperson, Alistair Campbell. I know that she's had a lot of criticism and pressure in the New Zealand media, and particularly online stuff. But I would say Jacinda Ardern is genuinely one of the most respected political leaders in the world. Everybody, nice to have your company here at First Up for another interesting program. Uh, it's Tuesday, so we'll always like to kick off by heading to the UK for our first chat of the year uh, with our beloved Henry Riley, who uh, joins us. Kia ora, sir, how are you? Alan Nathan, very well, thank you. Hope you are too. Okay, now Boris Johnson, I see him there. Boy, he wears a beanie on his head a really interesting way, but we can get away from that. But he's back in the headlines. Tell us about this relationship with, with the chairman of the BBC. Yeah, it's all a bit strange, this. He's had a busy weekend. He spent actually Saturday in Kiev at the request of Vladimir Zelensky. So he's done that, which obviously held him in high regard. And now he's come back down to the UK with a bit of a bang. The Sunday Times, one of our big newspapers, doing an investigation. Difficult to explain. Let me try and do it. So there's Boris Johnson, who was prime minister at the time. The government's in charge of who becomes chairman of the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. There's a man called Richard Sharp, who is the chairman. It's emerged. I mean, he's well known. He's a former Tory donor. He's already given the party £400,000. This was common knowledge before he was the chairman of the BBC. But the Prime Minister Boris Johnson was after a certain sum of money, £800,000. Mr Sharp, the now chairman of the BBC, he's a former banker himself, essentially got Boris Johnson's distant cousin, a man called Sam Blythe, who was going to lend Boris Johnson the money. He introduced him to a man called the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case. And it's all got a bit muddled because there's now a review going on as to how this happened. Has Is this the reason why Richard Sharp was appointed the chairman of the BBC? Is it because he helped facilitate Boris Johnson getting this loan? There are various questions to ask. It also gets a bit um, murky, Nathan, because we learned that Richard Sharp we did know this. He, as I said, he's a former banker. He used to be Rishi Sunak's boss when he was a banker as well. Right. So it's all sort of uh, interwoven here. But there's an investigation going on as to whether Mr. Sharp got the appointment as BBC chairman legitimately. Legitimately, Boris Johnson was asked about this today. He said it was a load of nonsense and that Richard Sharp was brilliant and that's why he got the job. Nothing to do with the fact that he may have played a role in Boris Johnson receiving a loan of eight hundred thousand pounds. Oh no, I'm sure. I'm sure it wasn't. Let's go to the. the this is interesting. So the, the the infamous picture of Prince Andrew with his arm around around the woman who accused him of abuse, and then uh, Ghislaine Maxwell there as well. Uh, she says it's a fake. How, what is she saying? Is she saying she's photoshopped into that, or it's just completely fake? What she's saying about it? Well, yeah, she's questioning the authenticity of the photograph. It's that famous photograph, as you say, Nathan, where Prince Andrew allegedly has got his hand over Virginia Dufre and Jalen Maxwell is sort of in the right-hand shot of the frame, smiling. Now, Prince Andrew did question this photo in the past, if you remember. He was saying that he doesn't remember this photo ever being taken and he didn't recognise it. 
now Jelen Maxwell is saying that actually she says the photo is, in her words, a fake. She said, I don't believe it's real from a second. You may be asking, how is Jelen Maxwell saying this? Well, she's actually giving an interview to a British uh, TV channel, Talk TV, from her jail cell. It's on Zoom video, so you can see her in the jail with a big prison phone. Uh, that she's holding throughout the interview as well. It's due to air tonight. This is one of the key lines that has been sort of briefed out before. We're bracing for many more as well. But Jalen Maxwell, not even slightly giving it legitimacy, that photograph, as you say, Nathan, she says, it's a fake. There's never been an original. And further, there is no photograph. I've only ever seen a photocopy of it. She says it didn't happen. There'll be some 14-year-old who knows how to work a computer program that can tell you whether that's photoshopped or not, and I'm I'm sure we can get them onto it. Now, you mentioned uh, uh, Rishi Sunak before this, sorry, not Rishi, uh, Rishi Sunak, your Prime Minister. Tell us about this. He's ordered an investigation into the tax affairs of Conservative Party Chairman Nadim Zahawi. Who's, Who's Zahawi? So Nadim Zahawi, there is a lot of sleaze allegations against the Conservatives at the moment, Nathan. It's somewhat difficult to keep up. So Rishi Sunak launching this investigation into Nadim Zahawi. This is the man who is currently chairman of the Conservative Party. So he's in the cabinet. He's in a very influential role. He crucially, Nathan, was the chancellor. He was the man in charge of the public purse in the UK during the interim government of Boris Johnson in that weird period where he'd resigned as prime minister but said he was going to continue for another two months. Rishi Sunak has asked his independent ethics advisor to now look into the tax fares of Nadim Zahawi. This has been dominating the news all day. I was on a visit uh, just outside of London with the Labour leader, Sakir Starmer, who said that Zahawi needs to resign and needs to be sacked today. If not, Sakir Starmer, our Labour leader, saying if it was a member of his team, he would have sacked them and all the pressure building on the Prime Minister now as to whether he is going to sack or keep Nadim Zahawi in post as Conservative Party chairman. There is a report that he allegedly paid seven thousand, sorry, a seven-figure sum, so potentially millions, to HMRC. He's admitted over the weekend that his own tax affairs, he was careless, but he says it wasn't deliberate, and he says everything was done above board. Oh, OK. Um, terribly cold in the UK at the moment. I think uh, there's uh, quite a few storms headed for the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, and your power prices are still quite high. So what's the government doing about that? Well, a couple of things, really. So firstly, there's this pledge today from Ofgem, which is the energy regulator. Jonathan Brearley, the boss, was giving a keynote speech. And he said, actually, we need to look at social tariffs, which would essentially mean in layman's terms that people getting onto energy meters from poorer backgrounds, rather than paying the full sum and then getting various grants and various loans, actually get a low rate from the very start. So rather than you having to apply for for a discount or you getting a subsidy from the government, actually, in the first place, you should be offered a lower rate than someone who can afford it more, let's say. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, and this is a very interesting idea, Nathan, this is up to a million households in England today will be paid if they don't use electricity. I'm sadly not eligible for this, but between five and six, so that's what, 50 minutes from now, In certain households, over a million, if you don't use your oven, don't use your washing machine, in that specific period, you could be paid anything from, we're told, a few pounds to 20 pounds. This is the idea of trying to use energy at a time when it's not so-called peak, and they will pay you if you don't use your energy at that time and use it a bit later on. So people are slightly worried that we might hear washing machines and dishwashers going off at two or three o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'm hoping that's not going to be the case, but uh, people paid nonetheless not to use it at peak times. So what you're telling me is you're going down the pub between those hours. Is that right, is it? 
that's where it's yeah worn. absolutely yeah i use the air washing machine <laughs> good on you thank you very much there he is henry riley out of the uk it's 12 and a half past five you're listening to first up on rnz national with me nathan rarere the suspect in yesterday's mass shooting in california has been found dead by police 72 year old who can tran is suspected of killing 10 people at a lunar new year celebration at a dance studio in monterey park the bbc's david willis is in los angeles officers called to a suburb in eastern la described a scene of carnage a ballroom dancing venue for elderly members of the local Asian-American community shot up on the eve of the Lunar New Year. Five men and five women were pronounced dead at the scene. Ten others were injured. The suspect has been named as 72-year-old Hu Can Tran. Police believe he was planning a similar attack at a dance studio in the neighbouring city of Alhambra before bystanders overpowered him and wrestled a firearm from his grasp. Acting on reports of a white van that he was thought to be driving, officers pulling up behind the vehicle heard a single gunshot ring out. They found the suspect slumped across the steering wheel, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Detectives also recovered a handgun and other evidence linking him to the massacre. Los Angeles is home to one of the largest Asian-American communities in this country. The banners and red lanterns that mark the start of the Year of the Rabbit, all part of Lunar New Year celebrations that traditionally herald the hope of renewed good fortune and prosperity. Gun violence needs to stop. There's too much of it. Uh, We're all standing here tonight because uh, an individual uh, took a weapon and did the damage that we've talked about without repeating it. I, I think all of us uh, um, need to take some ownership there. I think we really need to go back and, and look at what we do. President Biden called the attack senseless and ordered a lowering of flags on federal buildings in memory of those who died. Last year, in the wake of a school massacre in Texas, he signed into law the first major gun safety legislation this country has seen in nearly 30 years. But at the time, he said it wasn't enough. The massacre in Monterey Park is the fifth mass shooting in the United States this year. And it's the 24th of January. That's David Willis with that report. It is a quarter past five, which means it's time to hear from our correspondent in Japan, Chris Gilbert. And he started by telling me about what Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's plans are for 2023. Well, the Prime Minister is looking to front foot this political year. He had a bit of a shocker at the end of last year. He had four cabinet ministers resign in a couple of months for a numerous scandals and so he really wants to expel those demons or the brouhaha of the unification church Shinzo Abe getting shot it was just not a nice year in general for Kishidas and so he really wants to move on from that and so he's starting uh, his political year with his speech on Monday where he really highlighted child support and diplomacy. The first one, child support, as you may know, Japan has a lot of people, but less and less every year. It is uh, depopulating. New births fell below 800,000 for the first time ever this year. Um, And that means that there's not many people 
to support a growing number of aging and elderly people and pensioners and so on and so forth. And so he's saying that, look, we're going to uh, combat this with more funds for child support so that working families can go to their jobs and also have and raise children at the same time. The other thing is diplomacy. Tokyo intends to get closer with the USA, double its defense budget, amazing for a company which doesn't isn't meant to have an army constitutionally, <laughs> and increase its defense spending by $130 billion over the next five years. But to do this, it means tax hikes. And this is his pitch this year, is that his administration wants to pay for more child support and pay for, uh, I guess, more missiles by getting the public to pay for it. Uh, it's a bit of a hard sell as dividing his party as well. This means of paying for these things. Uh, you know, in Japan, inflation is at a 40-year high. You know, the, the uh, consumer goods have gone up successive months in a row. Import goods are up. Utility prices are up. Everything is up. And uh, now the, uh, the government is saying, hey, can you please pay for more babies and more missiles while you're at it, please? Well, you, know, you mentioned, you know, crises. We, we were great at saying everything was a crisis last year. We had lots of things. Cost of living crisis. We didn't have a pickled plum crisis, though. Can you tell us about Japan's pickled plum crisis japan has a pickled plum a pickle, I, I can't even say it i'm so outraged it has a pickled plum crisis so yeah pickled plums uh, umeboshi so ume is one of the words for plum and hoshi means to hang or dry in the sun so umeboshi means hanging dried plums right. and these are the things that if you come and stay at a ryokan or some kind of japanese hotel you'll have breakfast in the morning and you'll be like what is this tiny shriveled pink brain on top of my rice bowl that sir uh, or madame, is an umeboshi. It is an incredibly sour, dry, fermented, but also juicy plum. They're incredibly good for your gut, and they're going out of fashion, like hotcakes, if hotcakes been out of fashion. Um, apart from my wife, who, no joke, is a quarter Japanese, loves umeboshi, and I bought her a box of umeboshi for Christmas one year, these <laughs> tiny little sour plums, and it's the best thing I've ever given her. It was a massive success. So they are going, apart from my wife, they are going out of fashion, even though the other health benefits include the, uh, reducing the risk of diabetes, reducing blood pressure. For people who uh, want to watch their weight, they have a chemical that helps you restrict the bloating of fat cells. But uh, according to a wholesaler, Baijuan, this wholesaler umeboshi that goes back more than 100 years, young people today, they just don't eat the umeboshis. They said in this tweet, everyone, are you aware of the current situation in the umeboshi industry? <laughs> umeboshi warehouses are packed with umeboshi with nowhere to go. Luckily, umeboshi is a fermented good, so storing them for longer will only add to their potency. But apparently, umeboshi spending, according to the government, peaked about 20 years ago when the average household would, uh, would buy 1,000 grams of umeboshi, and now they're buying about 663. It's not all doom and gloom, though, as this wholesaler's tweet went viral with 10 million views and 30,000 retweets, and apparently um, some people are now buying a month's worth of umeboshi just in a day <laughs> so to support the umeboshi industry. And so, uh, so you know, the, pickle, the old pickled plum won't die out just yet. <laughs> and finally, just quickly, tell me about this. An apartment with no bath and no shower, I, I think in New Zealand we call that a cupboard. But I understand, what are they becoming increasingly popular? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the size of some Japanese apartments could be New Zealand cupboards. Yeah. But yes, like Japan has a re reputation for being expensive, but you can make compromises on your apartment here by having no elevator, or maybe just a basic toilet instead of one of the fancy toilets that has fireworks and stuff. They knock knocks about a hundred bucks off your rent. But the other way is to not have a bath or shower. Twenty somethings, these Gen Zers who live quite close to Tokyo, just ten minutes away, 
they're paying about 350 bucks a month in rent, ridiculously cheap rent, just by having no bath or no shower in their apartment. And no, they're not just being stinky. This is not an obstacle because in Japan, you may have heard there are these things called sento or public bathhouses. They are kind of at risk of dying out because people stopped using them and the old people who run them you know, are also you know, dying out. Mm. But these kinds of apartments with no bath and no shower were very, very popular two or three or four generations ago. And now, and so those, those people, you know, our great grandfathers or whatever, they wouldn't have a bath or shower. They would go to the public bathhouse. There's more leg room in the bath. There's a sense of community. You get to know the regulars who go there. It only costs a buck or something. You know, it's a nice time. I go there. But the thing is, apparently these retro apartments are now also, unlike the umeboshi, coming back in style. People like the, you know, the, the retro-ness of these old apartments. And so really it's fashion that may save the public bathhouse bathhouse industry as all these young people are like clicking their fingers like jazz poets and being <laughs> like "Ooh," when they see you know a, like a, an apartment with no shower in it they're like oh i'm gonna go hang out at the bathhouse that's chris gilbert in japan Twenty-one and a half past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Coming up on the program, National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis and former advisor to Tony Blair, Alistair Campbell. Uh, plus, we're going to hear uh, about the mayors of Canterbury and a really good effort too to try and help young people into employment. Okay, let's head to North Canterbury now with our local democracy reporter David Hill. Kia ora, David. Um, it sounds like there's there's a lot of jobs in your neck of the woods, but it's a bit of a challenge for young people to get into work. So, can you just explain? What are the issues that the youth are having to actually deal with? Well, there's there's a number of issues which probably affect yeah, young people anywhere in the country, but they're probably exaggerated when you get into small communities like Kaikoura and Hidanui because of their isolation. Um, you know, there's the, the misconceptions, I guess, around a lot of employers have had the perception that young people just won't work out and maybe they don't, they don't want to train young people. Um, you know, young people have got that lack of experience and qualifications. Um, and in Kaikoura, I mean, the, the recovery um, is, is, is essentially completed, so a lot of jobs were lost there. And then, of course, with COVID, tourists weren't coming, so employers weren't employing anybody. And, and then you got the whole issue around how do you get a driver's licence if you live in Kaikoura because you've got to drive to Blenheim or to Rangiora to see your driving test. Ah, well, that's a big isn't quite a, it? Quite a big barrier. Yeah, that, that is a bit of a barrier, isn't it? Yeah, true. Because of course, people living in rural communities. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to make it in and out of there. So this this mayor's task force for jobs program that's that's running there in in Kaikoura and Hurunui for the last couple of years is that is that to do with this? Like, what what's that helping with? Well, yeah, that, that, I, I think that sort of largely came out of the yeah with the earthquake recovery. Um, a lot of Suddenly, employers didn't need that didn't need that staff. So, what do you do with all those young people that are potentially going to become unemployed? But you've also got young people that leave school without qualifications. If you know, if you're in in those areas, you you need to leave home if you want to do any training. You know, if you're in Kaipoi or Rangiora, you can jump on a bus and go into Christchurch to do training. But you can't do that if you're in Kaikoura. It's a, bit, it's a bit further away, so you know it's just a, a realization that it was it wasn't so easy for young people. So they, the you know the local it's 
MES Task Force for Jobs is a um, initiative of local government New Zealand funded through Ministry of Social Development. So it's, it's saying that obviously it's helping helping to bridge that gap between um, young, getting young people ready for work and, 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 and helping employers take them on. That's brilliant leadership there. So um, are they, I understand also uh, others have had a look at that program and think that that might be quite good. Is it uh, Waimakariri want to join as well? Tell us more about that. Yes, yes. No, it's something that um, Waimakariri Mayor Dan Gordon's been pretty keen on for a while. And, and um, of course, the, the, the criteria has been changed um, just recently. So Waimakariri has now been able to qualify as its population threshold. Um, you know, Waimakariri was too big, but now it's the right size. So they're just, just in the process of appointing a coordinator and uh, they'll just have an initial goal of um, employing or placing 12 young people in jobs in the next six months. Um, Hudanui and Kaikoura, uh, they they place about 50 people a year as their, as their program. So it's been quite successful that's you fantastic. Can understand why other districts want to get be part of it? Yeah, I, I can understand too. And what are there any other local initiatives going on there as well? Is it? Yeah, well, it's, it's certainly in uh, Waimakariri, there's there's been quite a bit going on. The um, the Waimakariri Youth Council identified a few years ago that there was a problem, and and uh, one young woman uh, took it on when she became a youth MP and. Um, Local MP Matt Ducey sort of taking her on um, on a casual basis to work with employers and young people to try and assist that. Uh, the the local schools have sort of been working with, um, you know, Ministry of Education, Ministry of Social Development to come up with some initiatives. They set up the Youth Futures North Canterbury, which they work with Haranui schools as well, and and they just. They've been. They started out doing a careers expo, but obviously that got a bit difficult under COVID. So they've moved into online resources just to help bridge that gap between, um, you know, between young people and finding their first job. Really. Yeah, David. Thank you very much for your time. That's some great news uh, out of North Canterbury with David Hill, a local democracy reporter. <laughs> Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Happy birthday to you, 24th of January, people. Uh, you share your birthday with Neil Diamond, but you probably knew that. He's 82 years old today. Here are some other things that touch down on the 24th of January. The rubber heel for um, shoes or boots. An American called Humphrey O'Sullivan patented that in 1899. And also the first Boy Scout troop organised by Lieutenant General Robert Baden-Powell in England on this day in 1908. I only made it to Cubs. I think I've still got my woggle somewhere. Hmm, might have. Uh, On this day in 1935, the first canned beer was released. So Kruger's Cream Ale, uh, sold by the Kruger Beer Company. Now, um, they didn't actually want to put it in cans in the first place. They went, ooh, no, no one's going to drink it out of that. But they were offered uh, the canning equipment for free uh, by the American Can Company for a trial. And they went, oh, give it a go then. And boom, hit pay dirt. And it went fairly well. On this day in 1984, it's the first time that people um, could get themselves a Macintosh personal computer. And on this day in 1972, you often hear these stories about it. Shuichi Yokoi, uh, 
He was a World War II Japanese soldier and he was found at his post in Guam and told that the war is over. He was living on a diet of wild nuts, mangoes, papaya, shrimp, snails, frogs and rats. Now this was 1972. He'd actually known that the war finished in 1952 but had uh, feared coming out of hiding, explaining that we Japanese soldiers were told to prefer death to the disgrace of getting captured alive. He was the first of three that was found and it was on this day in 1972. What you're trying to say, you're trying to say, let's get down to business, it's business time. It's business, it's business time. With us from the business team, it is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, sir. Morena to you, Nathan. What, is it Woolworths? Why is Woolworths back in the... What's going on with Woolworths? Well, Woolworths, you might not have realised that we talk about the two big supermarket chains, yeah. Countdown and Foodstuffs, you know, New World, Pack and Save and the like. Woolworths owns Countdown. Oh, that's it does simple. look a little bit W.E., doesn't it? That, yeah, that yeah, okay. yeah, that's where it comes. In fact, <laughs> if you, you look Jeremy. at some of the brands are, in fact, Woolworths mm. of their um, you know, goods on the shelves. Just interesting, people have been picking through the submissions that have been made on the supermarket deregulation or regulation, if you want to put it that way, uh, that's been going through the Select Committee in Parliament. Um, now, remember, this is one of the big things last year that the government trumpeted. The Commerce Commission study said supermarkets were coining it in a really big way. wasn't enough competition. Government response was to bring in legislation stopping land covenants, for instance, to stop them taking up land to stop a comp- to stop some competition or a rival shop being set up. But the other thing was a wholesaling, which was to make themselves available to supply anybody who knocked on the door. So it's interesting just to watch at the uh, or to look through the submissions. Woolworths or Countdown, if we, we put it that way, this is how they sort of slow things up. This is the business tactic, and it's not just supermarkets; it's in many sectors, which is saying, "Look, we agree with the general thrust of what you're saying and the need to bring in greater competition, and we like the idea of wholesaling and just you know opening our doors to." Anybody who knocks on there coming to buy some uh, baked beans for their shops. Uh, but let's not rush things. <laughs> I always love the variants. There's always different variants that come out of, now is not the time. Exactly, exactly. Yes. I, no, look, the ideas are great. It needs a little bit more refined thinking on this one. But you know, uh, it could be, it says, if, we, if they rush things too much, uh, bringing in the uh, changes to the supermarket sector. And, of course, wholesaling is one of the key parts of the reforms that the government's been looking at. Uh, they're saying, well, of course, there could be unintended consequences and in all likelihood... It'll push up prices. Oh, I was going to say, there's, and, and normally off the back of those variants, there's two answers. One is, think about the kids, and the other one is, it'll cost you more. It'll cost you more. So that's the one more. they've gone with. So that's okay. the thrust of uh, submissions from Woolworths. Um, interestingly, the Commerce Commission, which of course is, will be in charge of deregulated or of, of a regulated sector, they're saying, uh, we need... We think people need will need a little bit more time for uh, changes when they come into law uh, so that, that everybody can get ready and we can actually find somebody who's going to be the grocery commissioner because remember there's going to be a regulator, a grocery commissioner who's going to make sure that the, uh, the supermarkets live up to the code of uh, compliance that's been mm. put out uh, and that they play by the rules. So we'll wait and see on this one. Lots of 
tins of baked beans to go on the shelves before it comes law. But um, I just thought it interesting early in the year, and you see, uh, this is the corporate tactics, and it's just standard. It doesn't really matter what business it is, what sector. Yeah. Right? There's 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 a template out there for delaying tactics, mm. and the corporates have got it in uh, in droves. They have. Giles, thank you so much for Here your time, sir. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Let's see how the money markets are doing. Your New Zealand dollar is buying you the following. 64.4 US cents, 92.51 Australian cents, 59.59, good symmetry there, uh, euro cents, 52.21 British pence, 4.37 yuan and 84. 0.26 Japanese yen. It is 25 to 6. And every week we talk to the deputy leader of one of the two major parties. Today it's the turn of Nationals to IC, Nicola Willis. And as you may have guessed, at the top of our agenda this morning was the new leader of our country. I asked whether she'd been in touch with Jacinda Ardern since her shock resignation or with the incoming Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. Yes, well, Chris Lightson immediately wrote to Jacinda Ardern and thanked her and of course publicly has done the same and we've congratulated Chris Hipkins on becoming the Prime Minister and Dr Carmel Cipollone on becoming the Deputy Prime Minister. Those are significant roles. They are great privileges and responsibilities and we do congratulate them. Okay, so uh, I guess what sort of leader will Chris Hipkins be when you, I mean obviously you know your adversaries in the House, so what do you expect him to be leading the bench on the other side? Well, we get to see. I am pleased for him personally, but I'm not convinced it will be a step forward for New Zealand. We have to remember he's been a core part of the team that has been leading the country to date. It's Nationals' view the country has been led in the wrong direction, whether it's the weakening economy, the cost of living, law and order out of control, declining education and health standards, a growing bureaucracy. Chris Hipkins has been part of the team that have overseen that, and he's been part of a government that has really struggled to deliver. So we'll see what he does with this new role, but it's hard to see things changing substantively. So you must be in the driver's seat for the election then. Well, we're going to have to work very hard for every vote. I think the election will be close run and our job this year is to demonstrate to New Zealanders that we have what it takes to turn the country around, to get things done, to deliver them the reduced cost of living, the higher incomes, to restore law and order, to deliver New Zealanders the things that they need. And I'm confident we can do that, but we'll be working hard every day. I've heard Chris Luxon say get things done a lot in the last few days and yourself there as well. So th- those things... What what are those things? Is that, can we just go through those? What what are the things that, let's just say in a year's time, have got the national government, what am I going to notice that's different? Well, National has a track record of strengthening the economy. That's critical at the moment because of the unstable world that we are part of. We'll do that in a way that reduces the cost of living, so inflation and interest rates start coming down again. We'll be lifting incomes for all by backing businesses to grow. We'll restore law and order by getting tough on young criminals, on the gangs, on those who are victimising in our community. We'll be strengthening health and education services by focusing on the front line, not just growing the bureaucracy. And we'll be investing in infrastructure for the future. Those are the things we will get done. Okay. To speak of Chris Hipkins, are you concerned at all, I guess from your point, whether he will appeal more as a career politician to, say, middle-income people, you know, rather than your leader who's a, a former CEO? 
I think they're very, very different people. Mm. Chris Hipkins has been, as you say, a long-term political insider. He was an apprentice to Trevor Mallard. He's known for knowing his way around the parliamentary rule book. Chris Luxon is a very different figure. He is someone who has led global businesses, who has overseen very large teams, who's delivered returns for shareholders. And I think in a world that is looking for economic strength, someone who understands business, who has a track record of getting things done, is what New Zealand needs. So you'll you feel that it's it'll be appealing to middle-income people because they'll look up to him rather than relate to? I think they will relate to him too. Chris Luxon is a father. He is a husband. Uh, he is someone who is grounded in a desire to deliver for New Zealanders from all walks of life. But it's about more than just wanting to do things or talking the talk. It's about getting things done. And that's what he's done every year of his career. Okay. What what do you make there of uh, Carmel uh, Sepuloni? Do you think that she might sway perhaps a Pacific Island vote? Do you you see them as a significant part of the constituency? Well, I do think that it is significant for the Pacifica community that she has earned that role of Deputy Prime Minister. And as I say, I congratulate her on that. She talked about being a Westie. And of course, Paula Bennett is the original Westie Deputy Prime Minister. So there seems to be a bit of a a trend happening here. So go West Auckland, represent. And look, we'll see how she goes in the role. But look, I just want to recognise the milestone for Pacifica people. Well, that's that's us West Aucklanders, you see. We we just like we like a, um, a deputy prime minister that can change their own fan belt. That's what you want. <laughs> you know, one of the yeah. things one of the things I, I heard uh, Chris Ipkin say when he was talking the other day was he, he wants to focus things and narrow them down. If he repeals three waters and the RNZ TVNZ merger, what impact will that have on Nationals' chances? Because I know that's been quite a big pushing point for you. Well, those are two pet political projects that the government should never have embarked on and he'd be right to get rid of. But there's more to do. He needs to deliver personal income tax reductions so New Zealanders can keep more of what they earn. He needs to reduce the costs and regulations on business, including getting rid of the proposed jobs tax, income insurance scheme. He needs to rein in the bureaucracy, which during his time, as Public Services Minister, has grown by more than 13,000 people at the expense of frontline services. And he needs to bring discipline and delivery across government because spending is up a billion bucks a week, but we're not seeing the results for it. So I want to um, talk about, I, I guess, another part that's been in the news quite a lot. Do, do you feel that women face more abuse in politics than men, that particularly those faceless people on the internet seem to be a lot braver against you know, the women with their nastiness than they are against the men? Well, there's no doubt that women face gendered abuse that is very specific to us. I think all politicians get a degree of flack that comes with the role. And certainly I've noticed as our profile increases, we attract more of that. Mm. And depending on the positions you take and the issues you're involved with, I'm sure across the parliament there are varying experiences. But certainly as a woman in politics, I have noticed that some of the abuse is related to the fact that I am a woman. Politics aside, what did you think about the vitriolic part that was aimed at Jacinda Ardern? I know, I know there'll be people that had political things, but there was also a lot, a lot of other vitriol in there as well, with cartoons and swears and that sort of thing as well. What did you think about that vitriol that was aimed at uh, Jacinda Ardern as Prime Minister? 
Well, that's not my cup of tea. I don't think there should be a place for that in New Zealand politics. Mm. Let's fight the issues. Let's have very strong, robust debate about the right way to go about doing things. But it doesn't get, need to get nasty and personal. It can still be civil, and that's the sort of politics I think most New Zealanders want to see. That's Nationals Deputy Nicola Willis. Look at us all racing towards 6 o'clock. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. Still to come, we will speak with one of the United Kingdom's political heavyweights, Alistair Campbell, about the impact that Jacinda Ardern made on the world stage. The Professionals of Morning Report are up after six for a quick preview of our flagship news programme. It's Guy Onespina. How are you, sir? Very well. Nathan, how's things? Pretty good. Yeah, we're digging into Ratana today. The Ratana celebrations are nice. underway. For many, it marks the start of the political year, and co-governance is going to be a big theme there. And it's the outgoing sort of porupuruake uh, for Jacinda Ardern too. Mm-hmm. Her last formal gig as, a, as PM, and Hipkins uh, takes takes the mantle. So he'll he'll Does be he a, under a bit of pressure there. Yeah, he, yeah right. he'll he'll be there. Uh, we're going to talk to Shane Jones and John Tamahiri, a couple of old war horses uh, <laughs> of politics, who are going to give us their take on Ratana as well. So we'll we'll chat to a, a representative. Of the par there too, so uh, we'll dig into that. That's uh, going to be an interesting uh, political one. Yes, a lot of concern too about the use of Chat uh, GPT. Are you familiar with that? What is Chat GPT? Oh yeah, you check it out. It's this AI um, thing. Yeah, you scribble it down on your pen and paper. Mate. That, that pen and paper, that's bows and it, arrows stuff uh, nowadays. You, you check this out. I, I did a quick experiment. Said write me fifteen hundred words oh. on the economic reforms of the late nineteen eighties. It wrote fifteen hundred words, not four hundred, fourteen hundred. 98, not 1503. Absolutely perfect, accurate, uh, subheadings, the whole thing took it seven or eight seconds. Yes. So the so the schools are like I mean these are being banned in several schools overseas and mm. in Australia and, and Britain and so we talked to the PPTA here about what they're going to do about this about because to do that. Uh, you know well you think I mean I suppose automation's hit every other industry hasn't it and I know a lot of writers were very worried about yeah this. now they're coming for our jobs so yeah yeah oh boy the robots are coming yes <laughs> thank you go on. <laughs> Look, it's been said that our outgoing Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is more popular abroad than she is at home, and whether that's accurate or not, it's certainly true that she has made a huge impression around the world. To find out how significant she is as a global figure, I spoke to one of UK politics' heaviest hitters, uh, who's been paying close attention to Ms Ardern's Prime Ministership. Alistair Campbell was was one of Tony Blair's key advisers during his tenure as UK Prime Minister, and is one of the current Conservative government's most vocal critics. He's also an author, a broadcaster and host of the hugely popular podcast The Rest is Politics. So I began by asking how news of Jacinda Ardern's resignation was received in the UK. I'd say it was one of those moments when certainly people who follow politics closely were, you know, shocked. I think there was a real sense that one of the really good leaders in the world was stepping down. I know that she's had a lot of kind of criticism and pressure in the New Zealand media and particularly online stuff. But I would say Jacinda Ardern is genuinely one of the most respected political leaders in the world. I think that, you know, she's different approach to her politics. She's been impressive in the big issues that she's dealt with. And uh, yeah, I'd say she's, you know, she's a very, very different sort of politician to the ones that we're used to here. There's another, you know, she's one of the few politicians as well that 
people know her by her first name, and we had one of those called Boris, and he was the exact opposite to her. <laughs> Actually, it's an interesting point you make, because I discovered that she had resigned because I was messaged by a few of our correspondents overseas wanting comments, and I thought, you don't normally get that when a New Zealand leader resigns. So how significant do you think Jacinda Ardern has you know, become as a global figure? I think she is a global figure. I think that when you think of this, you know, the size of the country of New Zealand, to have somebody who you saw some of the commentary that was coming out from leaders around the world. And these are people, you know, whether it's the Clintons, whether it's Helen Clark, whether it's all the, you know, some of the sort of big name leaders who were, you know, I think really paying a genuine warm tribute to her. These are not people who get the, you know, the ball pulled over their eyes. They recognise real quality and real political talent when they see it. And I do think at a time when politics, certainly in our country, certainly in the United States and and some of the other major democracies, France, for example, where you do have this sense of really quite a nasty, polarised politics. And she somehow managed, and this may be part of the reason why she's going, but she managed to kind of keep this sense of, herself, her own persona, her own character, her own dignity. And I think that really did give her a, a strength that very, very few leaders of, of such a, a small country, population-wise, ever get. Do you think that she raised New Zealand's profile on the world stage? Oh, there's no doubt about that. No doubt about that whatsoever. We have this, I don't know if you're aware of it, this programme we have here, a satire programme called spitting image which is like yes you know it's a kind of it's a satire thing with puppets now obviously you have the main british political figures in it donald trump joe biden bill clinton but jacinda's in there and they do her as mary poppins as this sort of wonderful light it's, it's it's kind of it's quite affectionate but it's satirical so that you know that's a very minor point in a way but the fact that i could say to you know, when I heard the news, it kind of broke while we were asleep, as it were. And I woke up and saw, you know, she was stepping down. I go swimming every morning. I go in the swimming pool, and people would, you know, talk about, you know, what's this about? They weren't saying the New Zealand woman or the the New Zealand brother. They said, what's this about Jacinda? So that I think is, you know, when you talk about soft power, that's a good thing. I would say that, especially as your rugby team has not been doing as well as historically it does. Hey. I think you're the all. The All Blacks give a pretty powerful, soft power to New Zealand and, and your history and your culture and all that stuff. But I think on the political stage, I think there's no doubt Jacinda Ardern has, has been a huge asset to New Zealand. Yeah. You know, one of the things, and I, and I know you touched on it, that perhaps you have seen some of it as well, is that the extent of the abuse that was directed towards Ms Ardern from within New Zealand, I know it happens to female MPs in the UK as well. A lot of it is deeply, deeply misogynistic. How bad is the issue for women leaders that you've seen generally, and can we counteract this? Well, I think it is really bad. We have, and I think it's worse for women of colour. And again, I point to here in the United States. I mean, I think the most abused member of parliament online in the UK is a Labour MP called Diane Abbott, who's both a woman and black. So I think we do have a real problem. And I think, don't forget as well that a lot of it is organised. I mean, I don't know this, but I was briefed a while back from somebody who kind of knows about these things, who said that Macron, Trudeau in Canada and Jacinda Ardern were the three most targeted political leaders by the the bot factories and the troll farms. Likewise, I think that her very strong stance on post-Christchurch, her very uh, strong stance on COVID, 
the anti-vaxxers are out there. I mean, you're talking about a lot of organised abuse. Now, I don't know whether it kind of gets to her or got to her. I mean, I'm, I get a lot of abuse online and, and, you know, I genuinely have got a thick skin. Maybe, I'm, I, maybe I should take it more seriously, but I just, it just doesn't bother me what people say about me because I think you've got to, in the modern world, particularly in the UK, you've kind of got to just push it to one side if you can. Mm. But I think it's very, very hard. And I think the other thing I'd say is that I think a lot of, a lot of politicians, male and female, but I think it's definitely targeted much more at women. I think if you've got a young family, I think you start to take that into account. And so, yeah, as to what we can do to counter it, I think that, that I do think the social media companies need to do more, but also I think politicians need to do more for each other. I think too often politicians, when they see somebody who's under attack, they join in the attack when actually they should be trying to push back on it. Yeah, they love it, don't, don't they? I'm just thinking there, LSD, you hit on a really interesting point because I know you know some people go, oh, well, it's, you know, it's part of your job, it's a public profile, harden up. Let's just go Joe Public, ordinary Joe Public. How many days or even hours of this sort of uh, sustained personal attack do you think that a normal person could handle? Well, it's not just that, of course. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, I can remember when, when I worked in, in Downing Street, I, and I, at one point I had this kind of illness and I was seeing my doctor. And he said, he said to me, listen, the, the thing is, this is all stress-related. I said, well, you're talking about stress. It's a physical thing. He said, listen, you are operating under stress levels that most human beings could not cope for for a day, and you are operating under them like every single day of your life. Now, I think at the very, very top level of of government, Jacinda's sort of position, you've got that. That's the job. And people expect you to get on with that. And I think that's fair enough because you put yourself in that position. But I think then when you add on all this other stuff, it does mean that the pressures, I think, are probably greater even in the time that, you know, I was working with Tony Blair. And I think it's very, it's instructive that, you know, there she is going after six years. I think the churn in politics is faster. We have, we're, you know, coming up to the next election here, Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, Tory leader, Labour, Keir Starmer for Labour, they've both only been MPs for seven years because there's this churn. And I think the other thing that's happening, and I really hope, and I thought it was, you know, it was interesting, I do a podcast in, in the UK and we, we interviewed um, Helen Clark recently. And she, we also interviewed Julie Gillard not, not long before, and both of them made the point that it's very, very hard in politics these days and it's very, very hard for women in particular but they both said that they hoped that this sort of attack didn't put women off going into politics. And I think there's a real danger of that. I think that people just look at it sometimes and think, well, there's no way I can go. There's no way I can take the levels of abuse and misogyny and so forth. And I think this is a, this is a battle for men as well as women. I think men have actually got to do a far better job of standing up for female politicians. Mm. To, to move to, I guess, to, to have a look forward here, the standing that you spoke about before there of Jacinda Ardern, do, do you think perhaps organisations like the UN might come knocking and see if they can get her on the payroll? Well, look, put it this way, there's no doubt at all. It's like, in, it's like in your world, it's like in anybody's world. If you've got profile and you've got reputation, then these are really, really important. I mean, look, I have no idea what she wants to do with her future. But, you know, there's no doubt at all. She's, she's young. She's relatively young for a politician. She's now got an extraordinary amount of experience behind her. She's very popular. She's known around the world. I mean, she is not going to be short of people wanting her to, to join their organisations and, and, and certainly to, to use her name. I just want to ask you too. I mean, off your, based off your experience there with Tony Blair when you left Downing Street, 
when you leave a job, it can be quite quite interesting. I'm wondering here, you know, like what normally happens to these people when they have the most powerful job in the land, and then the next moment they're just pretty much unemployed. Like, how do they cope with that? Uh, I would say that some do it better than others. I think it's it's. Um, I think sports guys have this as well. You know, you're a top sport athlete, and suddenly it goes. Or you know, and and in a way, I think that can be harder because they often it's it's when they're much younger. But I think with politically, it kind of depends on what they want to do with the rest of their lives. But there's no doubt at all. There comes a point where you suddenly realise that. You used to get really irritated at the fact that the media were outside your door every day, and then you suddenly realise <laughs> they're not there anymore. You you look at the news, and you used to be on it every night, and now nobody really cares what you think. I think what has to happen is you have to decide what sort of life you want to build for yourself. So Tony Blair, for example, he went off and you know made a bit of money, and then he he basically has put that into building up this institute that he's you know he now runs. Uh, likewise, you know Gordon Brown is still very very active in the certain political issues and. Uh, I think it just depends what sort of life you want. George W. Bush, he basically sits around painting all day. That's his big thing. And, you know, so it totally depends on what the person wants to do. But the thing about Jacinda, there's no doubt at all. She's, look, I don't know, but I, I imagine she'll be feeling a mixture at the moment, both of relief, but also I suspect of, you know, a bit low about it because it's like, I think if she'd have, you know, when she started out, did she want to do maybe go for a decade or so? I don't know. But it's it's a lot harder in the modern age, I think, to go as long as a Thatcher or a Blair have done. That's Alistair Campbell. Uh, thank you very much for your feedback, which flooded in. Uh, a lot of you uh, vehemently degreeing, uh, disagreeing, I should say, uh, with Nicola Willis. Um, lot saying nothing will change under National. Do National Party leaders accept any responsibilities for National Party's meme working group? John, not happy about Alistair Campbell being on the programme. Thank you very much, John. Uh, and here's another one. Mike in Ahuridi, when I mentioned before about my woggle from Cubs, he said, no, it's a toggle, but we have checked. It is indeed a woggle. I don't know what you guys did in Napier, but in Hastings we called it a woggle. There you go. Uh, thank you very much uh, for being here. Uh, Morning Reporters next with Guyon and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears. Uh, ball, ball.